the breeze Just drift along with the breeze I met a guy today who was almost driven to the edge of drink because of last Sunday's New York Times crossword puzzle when he found out that some of his most favorite expressions that he used continually were referred to by the New York Times editorials in their crossword puzzles as great American cliches. (laughs) Did you see their puzzles? It's Adventures in Cliché Land. (laughs) It reminds you of the news. Campaign promises peace, truth, beauty, Fair warning before we get started tonight. Fair warning before we get started. I am going to fulfill a promise that I made over a week ago tonight on the show. So you might as well prepare to yourself right now to get fucked. I mean, these are times when you just have to indulge yourself. This is a day of self-indulgence, and there's no reason why... With the world self-indulging itself, why I can't indulge myself a little bit on a Monday afternoon. Monday like this, and I sit around Monday. Hey, by the way, that's one of my favorite commercials. I, I have a few commercials that I really dig, and that's one of my favorite commercials. You know that commercial that they've got on about the Monday morning blahs? Those scenes of all those guys, the guy leaving the igloo. And uh, <laughs> the Italian leaving his house, and the diapers are hanging all over the place, and 18 kids, and it's Monday morning, and he goes out, and they stop his face. You just see that scene. I think that there's what what was the other thing? There's another commercial that I um, that I heard the, today that immediately reminded me of the unbelievable ego of man. Oh yes, it was a commercial. It said, "Friends, uh, the." Um, the coffee bean is nature's way of sealing in true coffee flavor for you. Can't you imagine God sitting up there as the, he's about to create the coffee bean? And he says, well, there's got to be some way that we can seal in the flavor for all those people who are going to buy their coffee at A&P next week. And that's why the coffee bean, friends, was created, to seal. You know why fish have scales, don't you? To seal in that rich, delicious deep seafood goodness so that when you <laughs> so that when you get it from your bird's eye frozen food car <laughs> oh man, that's a egotistical man i'll tell you just did you see the uh, there's a little cartoon i saw a couple of days ago this guy sitting on a on a bench park bench and he's reading the paper and uh, he's looking up and he's looking a little bugged he's a little irritated because he has suddenly become aware that standing on the sidewalk about eight feet from him is a whole cluster of birds, and they're all standing down a little cluster looking at him. And several birds have got binoculars, and they're watching them. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, I'm sorry. But the, what do you mean? I mean, uh, uh, all right, I mean, uh, you, you, have you seen those bird-watching ladies out in, the, out in Central Park? Have you ever seen a more tennis shoe-looking crowd than that with the burlap skirts and, you know, the whole business? But, uh, all right, all right, let's get down to business here tonight. Now, it's Monday night, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, well, it wasn't that long ago, last week sometime, I did a show about World War I airplanes, and uh, I received hundreds of letters 
uh, from people about it. A lot of people became very interested in, in this particular show. And it's something I think that radio can do better than any other medium uh, because of the nature of the kind of thing. When you, when you hear the show, if you didn't hear the first one, you'll understand what I'm talking about. But currently, there is a terrific amount of interest in World War I aircraft. Uh, there always has been. As a matter of fact, there have, been, uh, there have been little groups of fanatics all over the country, in fact, all over the world, who have been uh, collectors of and, and, uh, and studiers of their clubs. Their, their, their clubs uh, all around the country. In fact, they're very, very uh, international, some of them, in scope, of people who meet every couple of weeks and sit and talk about World War I aircraft. And they collect memorabilia, and they collect... Uh, uh, oh, I, I remember one time attending a club meeting in Cincinnati. Now, this is how, how uh, esoteric and how involved it gets. But I remember one time attending a club meeting, and the featured speaker this, on this particular night was a big celebrity all around that area there uh, for this one reason. And he brought this objet d'art. In fact, it was almost a sacred object. He brought this relic with him, and he, he carried it in a box, and everybody watched him bring it in, and there was a kind of a hushed silence fell over the group. There must have been 250 people showed up for this meeting, which usually draws about maybe 40 or 50 in this particular club. They all showed up for one reason, that this man who lived in the Cincinnati area had an actual piece of the actual fabric from Baron von Richthofen's Fokker, the, fa the, the, the Fokker that he was flying when he was shot down between the lines near the end of World War I. And this is the famous, for those of you who don't know who Baron von Richthofen is, he is the dreaded Red Baron that Snoopy is always talking about. And, uh, and, uh, and among flyers, of course, during the, uh, there's still a lot of uh, parochial uh, residual uh, envy and so on about people like von Richthofen, who, of course, was a superlative artist in his field. Probably the greatest of all the aces of World War I, though, was a Frenchman named René Fonck. Uh, not from necessarily the standpoint of the number of victors, victories that he achieved in the air, but from the way that he achieved them. Uh, he was a little Frenchman, and uh, he survived the war, which in itself showed that he was pretty good. And more than that, uh, he had 75 confirmed victories. The French were very difficult about confirming victories. Various countries, you see, had different uh, attitudes towards confirming a victory by a pilot. Uh, and the French were very tough. And they were very tough with rank, too. Uh, not every flyer who flew was, a, uh, was an officer. In fact, uh, one of the most famous stories along that line was a World War II story that uh, a, a well-known British flyer was shot down. This was in World War II, and he was shot down early in the war. And uh, he was shot down over France someplace. And his greatest fear was that he was shot down by an enlisted pilot <laughs> uh, of, the, of the Luftwaffe. And in a, as a matter of fact, he had been. But the commanding officer, when he attended the mess, you see, the, they brought this. He happened to have been a, a, a wing commander, which is a high rank in the, in the RAF. They brought this wing commander into... Uh, the mess, and uh, he'd been shot down that afternoon, and he was a, a very gallant wing commander. As a matter of fact, the typical, the, the, the real aristocratic 
a pre-World War One or rather pre-World War Two British officer, kind of uh, what we always think of as the as the great uh, Errol Flynn type RAF officer, and he was brought in uh, to the mess, of course, and they traded him with. He was he was a celebrity among them, and and uh, this this was in the in the Luftwaffe mess where he had been shot down. He's brought in, and the commander of this particular squadron, whose memoirs that I'm quoting right now, realized that this man was very. Uh, very nervous about the fact that he uh, he'd been shot down. He was in enemy hands, and at the same time, he was a very proud man. And the first thing that he said, he'd like to meet the man that that, that shot him down, uh, since this man himself was an ace and had shot down many aircraft with a famous flyer. And, and now he'd been bested, you see. So he wanted to meet the man. Well, he said that I realized, of course, that it would have been very embarrassing for him if we would have had to take him then that evening away from the officers' mess where we were enjoying champagne and and uh, discussing uh, our common problems as aviators, and take him over to the enlisted man's mess, where the man who had shot him down was actually having his SOS, or whatever it is the enlisted man had, in, in place of the champagne of the officer pilots. And so he says, I selected one of my, one of my younger uh, flight, flight lieutenants, and uh, he says, I introduced him, and he says, and the, and the young man didn't understand English. And he says, so I introduced him to this great ace in English as the man who had shot him down. And he said, and the, the, the flight, the wing commander shook his hands, and, and, uh, and he, he, uh, <laughs> he, met his, uh, he met his victor. And then the, the, uh, he says, the young flight lieutenant for weeks was confused as to why he was singled out. And later on, we told him that we'd given him a victory, which he hadn't earned. But uh, th this was the part of the strange uh, atmosphere that surrounds flying in connection with combat, uh, it is not as silly as it sounds. Uh, flying uh, is a thing that binds people together far more than it splits them apart. In other words, the common problem of the aviator, uh, whether you're flying for country A or country D or flying for X, Y, or Z, the dangers of being an aviator and the sense of aloneness and the sense of fighting elements far greater than anything man can create daily binds these people together in a peculiar kind of, uh, uh, as a flyer myself, I can tell you there's a strange kind of a, uh, it's not strange at all. It's like sailors. Uh, there's a certain uh, rapport between sailors who understand something about the sea that the non-sailor doesn't understand. And so there is a connection. And it even holds good to this day because the sea remains the sea and the sky remains the sky. And this minute, uh, aircraft are falling out of the sky and the people who are flying them know something about it. Those who don't fly them can only hint at or guess. But uh, tonight, I have some great records to uh, play for you uh, that have to do with World War I aviation. Now, I've always felt for a long time that sound is, is one thing that we don't really explore much in our time. Uh, we explore all, uh, in the movie world and, and in the world of... Uh, 35 millimeter camera and so on. We're always pushing the edge of sight to the limit, the psychedelic effect of sight. And when, when we talk about sound, we usually refer to sound really as a great mass of sound that really accompanies visual things. For example, uh, the psychedelic discotheque is really uh, sound accompanying sight. It isn't sight accompanying sound. It's a different process entirely. And in the case of, uh, of sound, our, our minds are filled with millions of sounds that we don't even recognize 
consciously. They're all hidden subconsciously. And the sounds of engines, the sound of great masses of machinery moving in our time, is probably the most historic and telltale, uh, sensual, uh, possibly sensual uh, antenna that we have with the outside world. Now, why do I say this? Well, I say that, that a, a man in the 18th century, for example, never heard sounds like you are hearing every day and take for granted. For example, when you walk along 6th Avenue, you may be knee-deep in cigar butts and there's 46 million cabs all around you, but remember the sounds you're hearing are sounds they are very much part of this time, the sound of those motors. And, and they're not permanent either. That's the thing, too that who knows what kind of sounds equipment will make, let's say, a hundred years from now, when motors and equipment are very different from the way they are now. It's obvious that they will be. And so the sounds of a, of a Sixth Avenue cab will sound really uh, interesting and important to a man who wants to understand our century and if he's listening to discs and tapes 150, 200 years from now. Wouldn't you love to have heard the sounds, for example, of a recording of, uh, let's say, a group of Roman legionnaires returning to Rome? Wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that have been fantastic? With the sounds? Just the sounds of the, of the wag? Because, you know, when you go into, into Rome and uh, you, go, you, you go down into the area around, uh, around the Colosseum, they have uh, bits and pieces of the, of the Roman roads that are still there that were used at that time, and you can see the grooves worn into the pavement where these wagons, or rather these, these uh, chariots and, and uh, battle wagons and so on came back from the great, uh, the great campaigns that were held in the Roman Empire. And it would have been great to have heard a, a tape recording of that, much more interesting than a, than a picture of it, because we, we, we re really reproduce pictures so much. Uh, there have been much of that left, and uh, a painting, uh, a sketching will remain, but the sounds disappear. And we're the first generation of people who have in our hands the capabilities of saving the sounds of our century. And so that a hundred years from now, people can hear the sound of, uh, let's say, the late John Kennedy, the way he really sounded which will make his speeches have a very different ring. If you could hear, for example, a recording of Abraham Lincoln actually delivering the Gettysburg Address in Gettysburg with the sound of the people cheering or whatever it is they did, uh, that would, uh, who knows how he really read it, you know? His, his interpretation might have been very different from our interpretation. Who knows? All we have is the printed text and the statements of a few people who happen to have been on the scene who remember it actually being delivered. And as far as I know, I don't know whether there's actually a recording of a, of a memoir. Now, I don't mean a tape recording. I mean, is, is there a, a memoir around of a man who actually heard Gettysburg's address or the Gettysburg address by Lincoln? I don't know. I've never heard about it. But that would be interesting. Uh, the one thing uh, that, that, uh, that aircraft is the heart, really, of an aircraft is the power plant, of course. Now, now when you have a, a car, it's quite a different scene. Uh, most people don't even know what kind of a, of a motor they've got in their car. Uh, they'll, they'll tell you, well, it's a V8. Or they'll say it's a, it's a, it's a 6. If some people don't even know whether it's a 6 or an 8. <laughs> they've got, they really couldn't even tell you that. Uh, if you said to them, well, does it have overhead cams? 
he, this would throw him completely. Uh, if you ask him how much horsepower it develops uh, uh, under load, uh, as opposed to uh, to block horsepower, he'd be confused. Uh, and the, the the power plant is just a thing that once in a while somebody opens the front of it up and pours water in, and that's just, uh, once in a while it gets hot, and <laughs> that's about it. You say, well, we're, we're great uh, people who go for bodies, uh, and and that's to be expected because the the power plant is not as crucial, obviously, in a car as it is in an aircraft. And during World War One, uh, these airplanes where uh, it was the beginning of, of aviation, and uh, the, the power plants that went into these planes were widely differing, and were all kinds of uh, engines used. And as the war progressed, it began to develop. There were only about maybe a half dozen, or maybe a dozen at the outside, aircraft engines that were really reliable, great engines. And all the aircraft that were built on them were merely just a... Uh, in a sense, window dressing to this motor that kept that guy up there and gave him the, the mobility and the safety and furthermore gave him the speed and whatever he needed to do the job that he had to do. Uh, for example, most of the, uh, uh, the great Fokker planes were, uh, were powered by a, a almost by the same engine. And they just changed airframes and different air aircraft. Now, one of the great engines of all time, at least during that period, uh, and... And to this day, there are many of these in museums everywhere. And in fact, curiously enough, many of these engines, and I shouldn't say many, there are quite a few of these aircraft engines that were built. This engine that I'm going to play for you, built during World War One, that uh, are being used across the country in actual work right today. In fact, I, I know of two of them that are used on the far uh, coast, the Pacific Northwest, that are used in lumber camps. One in particular is being used for a to generate electricity. It's used to drive an electrical generator, this great engine. The engine I'm talking about is probably the most famous uh, engine of the early decades of flying, both during World War I and just after, and that is the great Liberty engine. Uh, the Liberty engine is by far the most famous American engine of its day, and it was the most powerful engine used during the war. This aircraft engine you're going to hear was by far the most powerful engine than any aircraft used. Now, for those of you who don't know anything about power in aircraft, don't relate it to a car. If you think that because you've got a car, your Buick has 422 horsepower or something, uh, the, the ways of measuring horsepower and the meaning of horsepower is very different in an aircraft. And if you have a private aircraft today, a good, modern, private, single-engine airplane, and it has a 235-horsepower engine in it, that is a powerful private airplane. And, in fact, the most average is would run about 180 horsepower, the Lycoming and the Continentals. So I'll give you an idea what kind of an aircraft engine this is. The Liberty engine, in this, in this version that you're going to hear, uh, developed... 425 horsepower. It's a big aircraft engine. And that was the first really, uh, you could say, modern aircraft engine in the commercial sense. And it was most frequently used in the famous English de Havilland, DH-4. Uh, the DH-4 was an aircraft that was built in England, the de Havilland Company, which still builds jets and a lot of other English flying equipment. And it was a famous airplane during World War I, used for observation, used for bombing. It was not a, uh, 
It was not a fighter plane, but it was a, a famous... In fact, it was the type of plane that Richthofen most often tried to get because the DH-4 in operation was uh, sending back valuable information. You know, and on, on aboard the aircraft, for your, uh, to give you a little idea of some of the other things they had aboard these DH-4s, but almost all the DH-4s, particularly those used to, uh, to, uh, for observation, were equipped with wireless, which also was in its early stages, radio. And they worked entirely by code. And so the observer would sit, and he was usually an officer, and in command of the airplane. The pilot, uh, generally in those days, was a secondary figure uh, in, a, in an observation plane. The pilot was often just a sergeant, maybe even a corporal. And the, uh, the observer was the officer. And he would be observing artillery fire and sending back down to the ground uh, with a key his information in the famous English DH-4. And by the way, the DH-4 also was the great airplane that became the first airmail plane during the 20s. If you've ever seen pictures of those biplanes flying the airmail, those were, the, in m many cases, the DH-4. Uh, now, all set in there, you're going to hear the famous... Liberty engine. This is the engine that, that, the, that the Germans feared to hear because quite often the DH-4s, particularly coming over at night, were involved on a bombing raid. And this is the way the Liberty engine, 425 horsepower, and you'll hear the inertia starter. They, they started with an inertia starter, which was a great spinning flywheel. They would crank and get this baby going. And listen how rough it sounds as she starts. a powerful engine. Now I'm going to let you turn up your gain, turn up your receiver gain, and you can hear the, 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 the sound of these 425 horses on this great Liberty engine. She's warming up. Imagine driving up to a light with this sound under your hood. And there he taxis away. Did you hear the sound of that plane going off? That was a that was a famous Liberty engine, 424 25 horses and uh and this version, uh, the one that you heard, was in and, and uh, installed in a DH-4 U.S. mail plane that uh, did not see service in World War I. However, 
was built during the time of World War One and became a mail plane shortly after the war. Now, uh, you want to hear another great engine? This, 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 this. Now, this engine is so famous as an engine. Actually, what you're going to hear is the entire airplane, uh, because the plane and the engine in this case really are pretty hard to separate. Probably the most, one of the most famous in a kind of nutty way airplanes of World War One. Now, we all know about the SOP with camels and the Newports and the, uh, the SE-5s, all the great airplanes uh, that, that were fighter planes. Uh, nobody talks much about the airplanes that were famous among the, the flyers. What, what are you writing? You're writing like mad. All night. Uh, they, they, they rarely talk much. We rarely hear much about the planes that were famous among the flyers for reasons of their own. And one of the most... Uh, probably uh, famous airplanes built by America during World War One, And uh, this, this airplane, uh, in fact, there are still some of them flying. Now, that sounds very strange to say, but there are some of them still flying that were built at that time. This is uh, one of the most ubiquitous airplanes of all time. And it, in effect, really, is the aircraft equivalent of the Model T. Now, uh, the Model T car which uh, has uh, achieved a certain fame, never got famous because it performed great. <laughs> it never got famous because it, uh, it broke speed records. The Model T was not the Duesenberg. What it, what it got famous for was the peculiar affection that people developed for this car. Now, why did they develop it for it? Well, it was ugly to begin with. I think things that are ugly in general engender more affection among people than, than beautiful things. And so the Model T, there's a great affection people have for this car. And, and uh, wherever you go to an automobile show, people gather around the Model Ts because the, the ugliness of them is monumental. And so people dug it. I think one of the great reasons for the success of the Volkswagen uh, over the years has been the fact that the Volkswagen, friends, just ain't no Rolls Royce. It does not look... <laughs> it has a certain kind of ugliness that appeals to you. Uh, and and uh, it's the Georgie girl syndrome. And this airplane was one of the most ungainly-looking airplanes, one of the most noisy airplanes. Uh, one of the... Uh, uh, it was ungainly in a strange way. It had a great, wide, sweeping wing. It was a biplane. It had uh, thousands of wires. And when this airplane flew, it was genuinely a crate. Uh, you know the old expression, this is a, the crate. Well, this was what they meant when they talked about crates. This plane was a crate. And when it flew, uh, and it flew very slowly, uh, this airplane uh, was powered by an engine which is, uh, has developed an entire mystique of its own. And the power of that engine was about, oh, 90 horsepower when it was brand new. It quickly went downhill. And uh, in average operation, it gave about 80 horsepower. But it was a big airplane, so an 80-horsepower engine powering a giant airplane like this, it didn't go through the air very fast. And its flying speed, by today's standards, was incredible. In fact, uh, you could drive along the road, a road, in your Volkswagen right now today, and if one of these airplanes was flying overhead, he couldn't in no way keep up with you, and you wouldn't even be pushing your VW. And this was the famous Jenny, uh, better known as the Curtis JN-4D. That's its official designation. And this airplane was generally a training plane. 
And uh, it limped down the runway. I can remember. The reason I know something about the Jenny is that there was a guy living in our neighborhood who was a, a, an antique airplane nut. And he had a, an airplane that people used to go out on Sunday and watch. And it was a Jenny. And, and it was a, he had restored it. And this thing used to run down the runway. And it would r just limp down the runway with the engine roaring. And it would hop into the air and come back down again. He would make about three attempts generally to get it off. And finally it would, it would rise up slowly in the air. And its wings seemed to flap. And because it was so slow, it was very difficult to control. And it, it, uh, it was the... The, the great training plane, though, of World War I, and most flyers who flew, particularly for the American forces during World War I, trained on the Jenny. And after the war, a lot of these Jennies were sold to these flyers when they came back and they had no jobs. And so they took them all around the country. This was the famous barnstorming plane. And you remember the stories of barnstormers, and they'd come to the, they'd land in a field somewhere outside of a town on a Sunday afternoon, and they would charge a dollar for a ride around a town, or two dollars. And this was the airplane that they flew in. It was a two-place airplane, the famous JN4D, the Curtis Jenny. And now you're going to hear the OX-5 engine. Now, I'll give you some details on that. It was a, a V-8, uh, and it was, a, it was an OX-5 V-8. It, it gave out about uh, 80 or 90 horsepower. And the plane you're going to hear is an actual JN-4, Curtis JN-4, that was used in the last days of World War I as a training plane and is still in operating condition and, as far as I know, is still flying and being used, uh, and it occasionally appears in motion pictures. But this is the sound of a training plane. And this is what the, in fact, was the first aircraft engine that many people all over the country, if not all over the world, heard. And it's the sound of the famous OX-5 engine. Nice sound, isn't it? down now. V-8. The OX-5. Ooh, listen to that. Now, to hear this thing, you'd think that this thing had all the power in the world. Remember, this thing has about as much power as the average MG today. It's about 85 to 90 horsepower. And now they're taxiing it. There she goes. Now that's the sound of her flying overhead. Set that back, Bob. Right at that point. Now you're going to hear the sound of a of a. These 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 recordings have been made in different segments of the aircraft under different uh, points of operation. And now you heard the sound of the engine idling on the ground. And now you will hear the sound of a of a Jenny. This is an actual Jenny flying over the field with the full bore, her full 90 horses roaring out there. She's, she's flying across the field at about roughly the airspeed in still air was about oh, around 70 miles an hour. 
between 65 and 70, which is barely crawling for an airplane. Here she goes. Can't you see Chester Morris sitting in there with his white scarf flowing off behind him? And Alan Hale saying, I wouldn't send my worst enemy up in that crate. Heaven help that poor kid. <laughs> that's that's the sound of an OX5 engine. Now and now now I've got I've got something that, that uh are, are you enjoying this? Oh people like uh, I I do. I mean, you know, after all I'm a, I'm a sucker for sounds and airplanes both. And uh, you know what I'd like to do? I don't know whether anybody has thought of doing it, but uh, I think it would be very interesting, at least for the archives, for people to uh, to take a good tape recorder, one that has uh, sufficient, uh, sufficient uh, bandpass capabilities to, to uh, get the sound of the exhaust and the tappets and one thing or another, to put on tape the sound of all the representative automobiles of today. Now, that, that, uh, that sounds like, you know, we, we have a tendency to, uh, to not uh, appreciate things at the time when they're readily available. And it would have been nice to have had a recording uh, available, let's say, of how Times Square sounded on an average night, let's say, in New York during, the, during Prohibition. <laughs> you know, the, the, the great classic Bonnie and Clyde period. <laughs> you know, the occasional burst of machine gun, uh, <laughs> whatever it is you need. But now now I've got something here that, that uh, in a way, is an artistic creation done by the uh, people who did, who did this recording. And it is an attempt to, and using the actual aircraft and so on, is an attempt to recreate a scene uh, in sound. And here, here is the sound you will hear. It is April 29th, 1918. The great German offensive of March 21st was bogged down, and the troops are now sitting immersed in mud and just waiting. 150 kilometers, kilometers north of Paris, near a small gray village, is a German airfield. Now, the airfields of that time were very different than they are today. They were just a field, usually, that was cleared off, and they... Uh, made a little strip, and that was about the end of it. And tents, they, uh, they, they lived usually in tents in the war. And uh, life was very rugged on an airfield in those days. And uh, it's a strip of mud filled with potholes, takeoffs and landings, and it is Jagstaffen 30. This is the an actual uh, group, uh, an actual squadron that was stationed at that point in 1918. At that time, this, uh, this uh, group, this squadron, was armed uh, almost exclusively with salts, faults rather, faults D-12s. Now, last week we did something on the faults. This was a great German fighter plane, very dangerous airplane. Not popular, by the way, among the pilots, but for the pilots who could fly it, it was an extremely effective weapon. And it was a, a, a fiendish-looking aircraft. It is not quite dawn now as we see this scene. The soft hills are blending away in gray, and uh, nobody knows quite what kind of weather it's going to be. It's gray in the morning. And then two falses have been pushed out into the apron in front of the tents that serve as hangers, and the mechanics are sitting in the cockpit watching the sky to see what kind of weather it's going to be. 
They do not look up as they prepare the planes, the other mechanics, as they stand shivering and uh, working around the, uh, the aircraft as they get ready for the morning flight over the lines. And you can hear the, the primer, hear it squeaking. The mechanic spins the prop. One of the engines warms up here. Hear it squeak, she dies. It's dawn, it's quiet. Hear him talking? Hear the primer squeaking on the other one? They're trying to get the other one going. There's two planes on the runway. Here, the other one's breaking in. morning and these these planes are brilliantly camouflaged this uh, particular group used yellow green and blue camouflaging the planes were painted in wild bright colors to blend with the French countryside the big black iron crosses on the wings now they're warming them up they're taxing them out. Two German false D-12s about to go out at dawn. Oh, there she goes. Now they've got both of them running. These are actual aircraft, by the way, that you're hearing. These are not reproductions. This engine is a 180-horsepower Mercedes six-cylinder engine, the most famous of all the aircraft engines used by the Germans during World War I. And by the way, the basis of a lot of Mercedes engines all the way on up through the early 50s in automobiles. Now they're taxiing out. They're taxiing down the runway now. The pilots are in. Listen how they take off. They take off together. There they go. Off into the distance. They're armed with their, uh, that, air, uh, that aircraft, which I talked about last week, has a couple of Spandau. Here they go. Now they, now they have a recording of them flying at 2,000 feet. The sound of anti-aircraft fire. That's the sound of a Spandau machine gun being fired, in case you're interested. These are actual faults. 
That's the way. That's the way a fighting aircraft really sounded. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> oh, that kind of uh, kind of makes the, the 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 goosebumps there a little bit, doesn't it? The sound of it. That's 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 the way it really was. And uh, there they go. Very dangerous airplane to fly. And by the way, Baron von Richthofen flew one of these planes during uh, one period of his career and got quite a few of his victories in a false D-12. Wicked-looking airplane. Biplane, for those of you who want to know how it looked, with a sharp-pointed nose. There she goes. You can just see George Papard on the scene. <laughs> there you go. I told you I would do this. I've got uh, I've got the sounds of other aircraft engines of the period, and uh, one of my most prized possessions, as far as a, as a collection of records of great sounds, is a collection of sounds of racing car engines that were great race cars prior to World War II. Uh, the great cars that raced uh, in the Grand Prix circuits all over Europe and some of the cars that raced at Indianapolis of that period. And let me tell you, the sounds of those engines, 670 horses with that whining supercharger would knock your stereo speakers into Staten Island. Hang loose. Uh -huh.